Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Today, we are talking about a concept called chronological snobbery, and it, it sounds really fun and kind of sassy because it is really fun and <laughs> kind of sassy. So first, what we're going to get our minds around is kind of what the definition of chronological snobbery is, and then we'll get into the layers of how this impacts thinking Christianly and what the Christian should be aware of with this concept. So Stan, would you kick us off with some definitions? Sure. This is a term that C.S. Lewis used in his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He actually credits its origin to Owen Barfield, a colleague of his. But uh, it's this idea, in his words, of uh, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our age and the assumptions that whatever has gone out of date is therefore discredited. So, in other words, assuming that new is always improved that people only believe things in the past because they just didn't know any better. And now we've got things all figured out. So that's, that's the idea. Well, I thought it meant uh, having a bad attitude toward old people, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I, <laughs> I've experienced, but I, but I love Stan's definition there. And I, I, I would just reinforce it's the idea that uh, books that aren't current are just out of date, don't have anything to say to us. Because like Stan said, we've made progress and know better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only reason somebody would believe something in an old book or from an old thinker is, is they just, they're just not up to speed. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the age of the enlightenment, right? We're finally enlightened and know stuff. And uh, those before us didn't. They were, you know, the, our, our terms belie this attitude. Those were the dark ages. Right. Their, their thinking was so medieval back then. They were just clueless. And isn't it great that we aren't like them? <laughs> that We've got this all figured out. That's the idea. So I can see this impacting both the way we view culture, but really deeply impacting the way we view scripture and theology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not saying that everything in the past is better than it is now. So mm-hmm. help me evaluate, how would we decide what has improved and what hasn't? Well, I think uh, one way is you have to be exposed to old books. <laughs> uh, you need to read them. Um, you, and you'll be shocked. Uh, if you read, just for example, some of the medieval thinkers' treatments of friendship, that they will blow you away because they distinguish various kinds of friendship and they list a set of principles about what harms friendships and what enriches them. And there's so much wisdom there that some of the pop psychology we read today is so is shallow compared to them, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't read older books. And I just think in my own intellectual development over, over 50 years, um, the reading of books that are, let's say, 50 years older, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, and of course, the Old Testament and New, uh, I have found uh, a tremendous amount of wisdom and insights 
to combine with what I learned from contemporary writings where I think it's not shallow, but it's substantive and so on. You have to keep in mind, by the way, that in today's milieu, there's this, there is a tendency because of the occurrence that are in our culture to actually distort a subject uh, in order to promote your own agenda. So sometimes reading contemporary books can give you a completely inaccurate presentation of a subject uh, compared to the ancients. Now, you might say, well, they did that too. Well, no, I don't think they did as much. We all have a tendency to do it. But I will tell you that back then, they were very careful to give precise presentations of the views that were opposed to theirs and treat those views with respect and answer them. Now, that doesn't mean they were right, but it does mean they were they were fair minded in their in their writings, whereas today that's still true in some cases. But you've got to be much wiser to read a contemporary book because you don't know what you're getting. You know, C.S. Lewis actually has an article entitled on the reading of old books and the argument he makes in it is so helpful, even if all contemporary authors are being fair to other views. He says, you ought to read old books, not because they got it all right and we have it all wrong. Uh, they had their own errors, their own issues, but they aren't our issues. So, so we'll spot the issues they had because we're not susceptible to making those same errors. However, they will point out our issues that we in our cultural moment can't identify. So it's, uh, to your point, JP, uh, even if uh, the author today is trying to be fair, there's still a milieu that we live in that colors how we see things. And so by reading old books, Lewis is arguing, I think he's right. I think we found it to be true in our own lives. We just see things differently that we just could not see otherwise without them pointing it out to us through the ages. Mm-hmm. A case in point of that, that's such a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. I uh, did some research on uh, a couple of the major studies about the happiness of people uh, since about the 60s to to the present. And in both of these studies, one was the most heavily funded study uh, to that point. The results were published and shown on ABC News. They made the observation that that people aren't happy today, and, and they gave certain reasons for that. And the statistics are pretty clear about that. There's not much dispute that we're not as happy as, say, people were two, three generations ago and earlier. But what I discovered was that there was a definition of happiness that was relatively recent. And I'm I'm talking about in America since uh, the late 1800s to today, and perhaps a little bit earlier in Europe, happiness was defined as a certain kind of feeling that you get when your team wins or you have a grandchild, or it's a sensation of being uplifted or joyful or, or, or Uh, adrenalized, or it's a pleasurable feeling. But when I went back, and I've read Aristotle on this, and and I've read some of the church fathers and all through the medieval period, and and they defined the happy person as the person who knew how to live life well with wisdom and character. Now, armed with that new understanding of happiness from old books, (laughs) I went to the scriptures and I had eyes to see what was already there, but I didn't know how to look for it. 
So I began to understand that the biblical teaching about happiness harmonized much more with the virtually uniform teaching in the, among the ancients. Mm. And the problem of today was that a lot of people were chasing after something that was never meant to be chased after in the first place, because modern happiness is a wonderful byproduct of seeking ancient happiness, but it's a terrible goal to seek modern happiness in its own right. It's called the paradox of hedonism. The more you try to get pleasure, the less it satisfies you, and you have to get addicted to get more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. So there's an example of exactly what Stan is saying. That is a great example. Yeah. And again, Jordan, to your point, it doesn't mean that everything in the past was right and we've got it all wrong. That'd be the other extreme. You know, there's, there's, there's an error both ways. It's this balance that, no, there are things that we believe now that we can't see are wrong. And we need others from other eras to tell us or help us see those errors. But, but we certainly correct things that others in others' eras have, have gotten wrong. Let me, let me read to you how Lewis puts it in his On the Reading of Old Books. He says, every age has its own outlook. It's especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. Mm-hmm. I think it's what you're trying to say, JP. Oh, that's absolutely. That. Well, that's well put. <laughs> of course, Lewis of course, he, uh, he puts, put things pretty he, well. <laughs> he tends to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a great point to remind the listeners that C.S. Lewis was a medievalist. He he was not just an apologist or just a writer, but mm-hmm. really he spent the majority of his life working in medieval literature. He had read all of the great works of medieval literature in their original languages, and not only that, but had studied them deeply and was one of the most knowledgeable men in the world on these things at the time. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when C.S. Lewis says something like that, he's not saying that necessarily only from the perspective of a Christian apologist. He's saying that from the perspective of someone who understands and really lives lives in the idea that he is part of the trajectory of history and he understands his place in it and mm-hmm. is helping yes. others to understand that too. This is why he called himself a dinosaur in his inaugural address when he joined the faculty at Cambridge University. He spoke of himself as a dinosaur to be studied because he was a dying breed. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. was somebody who actually believed that medievalists had something of value to say and should be studied. And the Enlightenment was all about throwing that away and saying, we're enlightened now. We don't need to listen to those voices. They were clueless. And so he is a dying breed, but I think it's a breed to be part of and, and, uh, <laughs> and maybe resurrect. Absolutely. Count me in. A, I'm a dinosaur. I'll tell you that for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's just another example. You know, a handful of years ago, uh, the scientist Michael Behe Uh, came out with a book called Darwin's Black Box, where he argued that there are irreducibly complex structures that can't be explained by evolution. Now, he used a mousetrap to illustrate it, but an an irreducibly complex structure is some kind of whole that's made of parts, and all the parts have to be there in the right order, or the whole doesn't function. So he says, if you take a mousetrap it's got the wooden platform, it's got a, it's got a spring, it's got a, a thing that you bend over and a latch that you attach it to, and a little place to bait uh, the cheese. 
Now, he said if you take one of those parts away, the mousetrap doesn't work. And uh, so you can't evolve uh, an irreducible structure one part at a time, because until all of them are there in the right place, it will actually be counterproductive to the organism that has it. Now, what I, what I found interesting about that is that's not a new argument at all. In fact, I've read a, a fair amount on, on biology at the time Darwin wrote his Origin of Species. And one of the major arguments that all the research scientists in the laboratories of Europe and America, 99% of whom were creationists, the argument that they pushed back on was this argument, uh, that there are structures in the human body that require all the parts to be there at the same time in the right structure, uh, or else it, it won't work. And that is something, what, what that tells me is that this argument has been around a long time and it still hasn't been adequately addressed. So, so I, gain, I gained wisdom about this argument that while Behe has maybe made it more specific in a new area, that line of thinking has been a problem since the very beginning of evolutionary theory. So that was a very important thing for me to know because if an argument sticks around a long time and the responses to it really don't get rid of it, you got, you got, you got a problem. There's an argument mm -hmm. there that's pretty tough to deal with. And that's what reading an old book did for me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what, that's what Lewis suggests is when tempted to reject an idea simply because it's old or, you know, other synonyms, synonyms would be archaic or medieval or outdated or ancient. <laughs> Uh, that we just stop and ask a few simple questions. One, why is this wrong? And he says, old age doesn't kill true ideas. <laughs> so why is it wrong? Not just it's old, so it's wrong, but what's the reason it should be rejected? And in fact, secondly, has it been refuted? And who's refuted it and how strongly? Again, not assuming because it's old, it's wrong, but we've got to actually see arguments refuting these ideas. And a lot of ideas of pre-enlightenment time have not been refuted. It's just they're assumed to be wrong because they're old. Well, Stan, I had a professor in my PhD program at SC who was not a believer, although later uh, Dallas Willard actually led him to Christ oh. after I was there. But he told me we went out to lunch and this prof said to me, you know, the medieval arguments for God's existence have never been refuted. People just lost interest in them. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, no one knows them anymore. Right. Uh, it's not that right. they were refuted. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Well, I had a very similar experience when I was doing doctoral work at Marquette, a Jesuit school. And a good friend of mine, somebody you know, went on to do doctoral work at Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. As we were comparing notes, as we stayed in touch, compared notes about what we were studying, he was amazed at the level of thought and rigor of thought that the medievalists were engaging on issues that he was studying as well, but in a department that did not engage the ancient medieval philosophers uh, nearly as much, if at all, on those issues. And he could not believe it. And he shared some of these things with his professor, who he was writing his dissertation under. And this, this gentleman, a world-class scholar at a top-tier university, said, you know, I've really never read those medievalist thinkers. I need to go back and read them because they're really doing some very sophisticated work on this issue.
And Absolutely. Uh, it was just not part of the, 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 the milieu they lived in. They just didn't think that you read these guys because they got nothing to say. No, actually, they had a whole lot to say and uh, was, was, was a, a level of thinking so far beyond the contemporary conversation that this professor was quite shocked to, to find that to be the case. Well, and Stan, there's an immediate application of this and, and Jordan. Um, we've all heard people say when we when we make a, uh, a defense of some moral position like uh, uh, chastity before marriage and, and sex limited within marriage, uh, you will get the response. Well, you know, wh- where are you coming from? I mean, that's an outdated, old fashioned art argument. We've moved past that. And as one philosopher put it, the claim that something is bad because it's outdated belongs in Detroit, not in philosophy, meaning that cars can get outdated and they're replaced by better cars. But arguments, the, the time the argument was formulated, as Stan pointed out, has nothing to do with the evidence that supports it. It's either rational and likely to be true or it isn't. And so you have to do exactly what Stan said. Uh, if somebody says, well, that's just old fashioned and out of date, I would ask if the argument was formulated five years ago, would you accept it? <laughs> mm. uh, so, I mean, the real issue is not the date of the argument, but what is the argument? And can you tell me what the argument for chastity actually mm. is? Mm. Well, a lot of times people can't do that. It's just out of fashion. It's not the way we do it today. Well, mm-hmm. you get that's a shallow mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. And Lewis argues that when we do take the time when confronted with a quote unquote old idea and really try to engage it and think it through and see if it is still reasonable to believe that that we begin to, as we see, there are good reasons to believe some of these things that have been outdated, quote unquote, we start to realize that, yeah, there are, I guess, some of our modern beliefs and values that we ought to uh, question beyond just this issue. And we say maybe there's some other ideas from the earlier periods that I ought to reconsider. And it just opens our world to truth in a way we may not have ever considered uh, thinking about, uh, which, is, which is really, I think, ultimately what we're all after, right? Living lives according to what's real and true. You bet. It is especially helpful when we are trying to make a decision I think of churches that struggle to come up with content. I find that word really troubling sometimes because it seems that we've replaced knowledge with content. Uh, But when they're trying to come up with, well, you know, what should we, how should we disciple people? How should we do these things? And it's a lot of reinventing the wheel over and over again, which Mm -hmm. if they would just look back into church history, would find a deep and rich tradition of people who've spent their entire lives answering the questions that they're trying to answer in a number of months or weeks. Mm-hmm. And very good point. That wasted energy and then the chronological snobbery that comes with it of oh, we have we have made this instead of adopting something else. It it doesn't lead us into a helpful humility that follows a historical pattern. Mm, good point. Right. My area of research has largely been uh, in philosophy of mind and the mind-body problem and the soul-body problem. And, and one question that, that uh, years ago I was having 
difficulty answering was what exactly is the relationship between the soul and the body? It's got to be more intimate uh, than a lot of people were saying it was. Well, I happened to hear about the last great medieval philosopher named Francisco Suarez, who uh, wrote a work called uh, Metaphysical Disputations in the, in the late 1500s. And I, I went and read his account of a set of metaphysical distinctions that did a ton of work for him. And one of those was exactly what I had been looking for. Mm. And once when I took that over into the contemporary discussion about the mind-body relationship, it solved a whole bunch of problems that were not part of the discussion because people didn't know about these distinctions. And yet they were as relevant as ever uh, but they had been forgotten, like Stan said, mm-hmm. and that, that's, I'm giving you examples of this, but it's really true. Mm-hmm. Well, I discovered the value and relevance of the ancient and medieval thinkers in my philosophy of mind class with you, where we were talking about that distinction and other issues. And, and I remember uh, wanting to do some research on euthanasia. And discovering that Aquinas had such rich categories and distinctions to think about this this issue. In fact, you may recall, I ended up writing a paper that you added to it. And we ended up publishing it on this because there, there's so much that can be said from the perspective of these nuances and distinctions of people like Aquinas that is just not in the contemporary conversation at all, much to the detriment of of the modern conversation around these really important issues in ethics. Well, can I give another example? And we're doing this. I think it might just help our listeners. Early in my, uh, after my PhD, I did a a fair amount of work uh, on a bioethics committee for a set of nursing homes. I was paid to do that. And I, so I did a lot of work on active euthanasia, which, which would be, physician assistant suicide or related ways of actually taking one's own life. And the the debate today uh, was about whether there was rational suicide. Now, rationality was defined very uh, tightly as being in possession of one's faculties in order to understand what one is doing and the consequences of what one is doing. Now, if one understood that one was about to engage in an act of suicide and understood that that was the end of him, then that was a justified a suicide because it was done rationally. Now, what I didn't know but found out and went back and read that St. Augustine addressed this topic because the Stoics of his day were arguing that rational suicide was a perfectly legitimate moral act. And he has a whole case against that. And he makes the point that the issue is not whether your action is rational in the sense that you understand it and you've contemplated it and you've come up with this conclusion that this is indeed what you want to do and you know what you're doing. No, He said the issue is ownership. Who owns you? Do you own yourself or does God own you? And that trumps rationality. It is so interesting. If you take a look 
at the history of especially uh, now I'm, I'm jumping forward, but from the time of John Locke for uh, two or three centuries, and even in some places today, the, the right to, to do some, use something depended upon your owning it. So uh, you either inherited it or, as Locke put it, you mixed your labor and sweat in producing it. So that if you own a car and you bought it uh, or you inherited it or you own a house, then you can decorate it and do what you want with it. But if you're a renter, you don't own the apartment. And so you can do what you want within the, the constraints that are set down by the landlord who owns the property. Now, women will say, it's my body. I have a right to use it the way I want to. But the difficulty is, what do you mean by my body? And you can mean one of two things. First, you can say, it's the body that I mixed my sweat and labor in producing. Well, that's not true. You didn't cause your body to come into existence. Uh, you may have exercised a bit, but that was just developing a body that you that you were given. Or it can mean it, it's the body that I inhabit. But I would respond by saying, well, that is not relevant morally, because if you are renting an apartment, you don't have the right to do what you want to with that apartment. Similarly, if you inhabit that body, that doesn't make it yours in the morally relevant sense. Why? Because you, you're a renter. That body belongs to the person who, who, who made it, and that's God. And so you own your body in the sense that you're renting the body, but you don't have say over what you merely rent. The builder or the purchaser or owner of that property or whatever it might be does. And so that comeback, well, a woman has the right to do with her body what she wants. It isn't her body in the morally relevant sense. It's God's body, and she's simply using it or renting it. I got that from Augustine and then from the discussion of property rights that began with Locke and others uh, in England in the, you know, the 17th century and on. So interesting. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities. The College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. Lewis uses the word, the clean sea breeze of the centuries, helping to dust off our minds. And I love that analogy. In fact, I, maybe I should read the whole quote. Uh, let me read this to you because this, I think, says it so well. He was asked to write the introduction 
to Athanasius's On the Incarnation. And in that introduction, he writes the following. The only palliative or cure to our chronological snobbery is, quote, to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there's any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors being now open and palpable will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good correctives as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we can't get at them. So <laughs> I think it just says it so that is well, it right there, right? That's it. Yep. That's the idea. That's the that idea. Nailed it. That nailed yeah. it right there. And again, that's why he was a di- dinosaur. You know, the enlightenment assumed that you just can't go back and read that stuff. It's irrelevant. He said, no, he spent his whole life reading that stuff. And in fact, all of his fiction is taking these ideas, these pre-enlightenment ideas and putting them into the stories so that people can see them taken out of the historical context. So when you read the Narnia series, you're thinking about the world in pre-enlightenment categories, but you don't know that. So you aren't already having your guard up to think, oh, this is old. This can't be right. That's part of, I think, his his wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly interesting to me, too, that what we consider fantasy very mm-hmm. often happens in these Middle Ages. And it's almost as if even in the modern world, we have this sense that we have not yet reckoned with those things. And so our stories end up looking very medieval often. Um, There are some very popular ones right now, some that just released that are set in a sort of high fantasy medieval time. And I, I think that's a testament to what Lewis is saying there. This is something we need. We need to understand. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Stan, would you be willing to take us through a few of the distinctions that Lewis makes regarding chronological snobbery? Sure. I actually wrote a series in my blog of 15 distinctions that I think he makes all of them. Uh, I'm not sure they're all from him, but they're all, all related to what he's talking about. JP's mentioned one, the understanding of happiness, but I'll give you some others. So one of the major shifts, and this comes out so much in his fiction, uh, is the shift from supernaturalism to naturalism, from the idea that there's an immaterial realm, an enchanted realm, if you will, where there's more than just what we can see, to the Enlightenment idea that I only believe it if I can see it, or there's nothing beyond the physical. So that was one huge shift. Uh, Secondly, a shift from We've already talked about this a little bit, and JP mentioned it in terms of some of the ethical issues, from seeing persons as God's image bearers with intrinsic value to seeing persons as purely material beings. Third, a shift from beauty existing as an objective reality, if you will, as a universal, to beauty is in the eye of the beholder, uh, or, or the same could be true of moral values or even truth itself, from those existing objectively to those existing subjectively. A fourth one, from science gives us some truth of the world to science gives us all truth about the world. 
uh, and uh, a fifth one, just to grab another one, from the idea that we can know things without being certain of them to knowledge requires certainty, a la Descartes. So those are just five that are obvious uh, as we start to think about, well, what did people believe before the Enlightenment and after? Uh, and there's so many more, of course, but boy, those are just, those are rich, absolutely rich. So good. I, you know, another interesting one uh, that, that I've, I've written a little bit about is a shift in our understanding of, of, of freedom, individual mm. freedom. Mm-hmm. And it's, and freedom used to mean uh, the, the, the power to do what I ought. Now it means the right to do what I want. Now, if you treat it as the power to do what I ought to do, then you're free to play the piano if you have labored for hours and hours at conforming your hand motions to the nature of the piano keys. And so the power to do what I ought requires effort and practice and skill, and it has to conform to whatever it is that is determining what it means that you ought to relate to that this way. And so in sexuality, uh, the power to do what I ought is real freedom. Uh, Whereas the right to do what I want has led to a promiscuous culture of Turkish delight. And there is a growing body of people in the universities that are arguing that sex with animals is perfectly moral. Now, that that comes from this new understanding, but the power to do what I ought to do presupposes that there is something I ought to do. And it also presupposes that I can know what it is, because if it's there and I can't know what it is, it's hard to know how I can cultivate the power to do it. So that is just one shift. And people are so intoxicated by freedom the right to do what they want to do, don't bug me, is that they have completely lost the much more important thing, and that's forming my nature in order to have the power I need to do what I ought to do. Very, very, very different concepts. Well said. Yeah. Stan, you mentioned earlier the objective reality of beauty versus a beauty in the eye of the beholder. Um, how did how did you phrase that distinction? From beauty existing as an objective reality, as a universal, to beauty being in the eye of the beholder, being something mm-hmm. subjective that is uh, a particular that each person makes up mm-hmm. to suit his or her fancy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because we seem to all know some of these enlightenment shifts are wrong. We just can't get to where we can voice that. It's just a mantra, for instance, to say, well, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but none of us live that way. So let me give you an example. My in-laws live in Naples, Florida, and there is an event that happens every evening in Naples. It's on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Every evening, 5, 5.30, a stream of people start moving toward the beach, 100, 200 people every night. And all of them go to the same spot, namely to the beach to look west as the sun sets. Now, nobody happens to stop along the way and say, I'm going to stare at this dumpster now for the next 45 minutes because I think it's beautiful. No, everybody knows that beauty is out there looking west as the sun sets, not this dumpster that everybody passes by without noticing it or, or saying, 
boy, that's ugly. We should do something about that. See, everybody knows that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It's in what is actually beautiful. And they find that. But nobody's willing to say that because of this chronological snobbery. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it plays out also in courses, uh, art appreciation, music oh. appreciation. I mean, you know, university has had these courses. How do you appreciate something if there's not an objectiveness to know this is appreciable? This is something that we ought to appreciate and see as beautiful. So I think most people have this idea. It's just not in fashion to actually say mm-hmm. there are these universals such as beauty that we can all just see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis really nails this in the abolition of man. Oh, yeah. And especially in men without, without chess, which is kind of the first part of that mm-hmm. when he's talking about the cataract, cataract here, meaning waterfall. And one woman describes it as pretty and a man describes it as sublime. And one of them is wrong. It's not simply that, you know, they both had feelings, but it seems that even these natural objects or inanimate things call forth a certain response that's either appropriate or inappropriate. And he, he goes on to discuss that. And um, recently, Michael Ward released a really great book that is a guide to the abolition of man. And I have it here and it has the, the waterfall on it, which always reminds me. Um, that's great. Oh, it's, wow. it's a that's really... Great. It's a really right. beautiful book and yeah. very, very helpful because some, some of this stuff, again, it's very difficult to get outside our experience Oh yeah, and the way that people talk about things. Mm-hmm. You've noticed a few times I've mentioned the word universal. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask JP to say a little bit about this himself. He wrote his dissertation on this and has got a lot to say, and I've learned a lot from him. So how might you fill out what I've said or, or articulate that in a maybe different way? Well, absolutely. Um, A universal is uh, something that can be possessed by several different things at the same time. And so suppose we have two objects that are separated by 10 feet and both are exactly alike in in the shade of red. Well, uh, if, if that particular tone of red is a universal that means that that very redness is actually possessed by both of those objects at the same time they don't each have their own redness redness is a universal that unites the class of all objects that are exactly that shade of red and the same would go with beauty now there may be different kinds of beauty uh, just like there are different kinds of color But red, green, and yellow are all universals, uh, and uh, the beauty of a sculpture compared to a painting or to music might be different kinds of beauty. But within each lower-level distinction, there will be a universal that is what we're after, and it is not something we construct. And I think one of the reasons people have shifted toward this eye and the beholder thing is again made evident by by reading uh, ancient literature, and that is that there was there's a distinction to be drawn between aesthetic appreciation and taking pleasure in a piece of art. Now, what gives you pleasure may vary from person to person. I happen to like certain kinds of music, and I don't like other kinds of music. But I'm smart enough to know that that doesn't have anything to do with one of them being more beautiful than the other. I wish it did, but I don't have the training 
to discern those things. That's why in order to exercise aesthetic appreciation wisely, you can be facilitated by, by studying under a master who knows what it is that makes a painting beautiful if he still believes in, in, in objective universal beauty. And then you can have eyes to spot it. But if you don't have that, then your pleasure is not informed by your aesthetic appreciation, which, by the way, should first and foremost produce a sense of awe, not pleasure, uh, because uh, beauty is an awesome thing. But pleasure then should be what should follow from it. But it won't if you don't have your senses trained to discern, as they say, beauty and ugliness are good, good or evil. Yeah, and beauty is one of the three, what are called... Uh, transcendentals pro- properties that seem to be true of all all things or when there's a lack it makes something less than what it ought to be beauty truth and goodness are the three and i think that was if not the one of the central shifts in the enlightenment is the rejection of universals most importantly these transcendentals but others as well and an embracing of a view called nominalism, which says everything's a particular. It's my truth, your truth, my beauty, your beauty, my goodness, your goodness. But there's nothing transcendent and universal about those things. And that right. has led to all sorts of problems Absolutely, uh, that, we, that we see in every way this day. Absolutely. You're right. So say a little bit here about how we as Christians can evaluate these things. Reading old books is easier for me. but I struggle to read old books that are not necessarily Christian books. I, I seem to not have the, the ability to really discern those as well. So, you know, how do we get this training? What do we, where do we go? What do we do? Well, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that, but I have a couple of ideas. And, and the first one would be for a Christian to start uh, in an area that should be of interest to all of us. And that would be, how do I grow? as a mature Christian. Now, you will be impoverished if you don't read some of the ancient classics in the history of Christian spirituality. And I'm talking about uh, the imitation of Christ. I'm talking about the writings of the Desert Fathers, Mm -hmm. uh, Teresa of Avila or John Mm -hmm. of the Cross. There may be mistakes in these books, and when they start to, you know, uh, adoring Mary, I just say, "Well, I'm not. I'm going to turn the page." But there's, like, like Stan said, it's not that they got it all right; it's that they had deep reflection on things that we we don't think about any longer, and so we don't abandon contemporary principles of growth that are helpful, but we just want to add to it. So that can hook a person in recognizing the value of old books, because that's the first step. A person has got to be motivated to read old books. And so you have to start somewhere where they might get a payoff of some kind, wisdom or, or, or help. And, and these books in the spiritual life might be a good entry place because a lot of people are already kind of wanting to make progress in that. But then I think as Wesley, John Wesley pointed out, uh, thinkest thou can learn nothing from infidels? Thinkest it not. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and he said that we can learn a lot from people who are not believers. Mm-hmm. Of course, we, we're wise, but then I have to be wise reading Christian books. Uh, 
because I think some of them are reflections of our age and not uh, the word. Uh, so that then gives me permission. And, and so you've got to realize, uh, Jordan, that they're still doing dissertations in universities on Augustine's thought, on Aquinas, on Leibniz, on Descartes, on John Locke. These guys are still having dissertations written about them. I'll be lucky if 10 years after I'm dead, my books are not out of print. I mean, so, I mean, these <laughs> things are still being written about and having doctoral dissertations devoted to them because they're, they're so rich. They've got further things to explore because they have a lot to say. And that, that means that it's okay for us uh, to, to, to read those. Now, where do I go after I say start with, with the spiritual life? That's where you kind of need people in the church that are kind of semi-masters or they've at least dove into this enough to where they, they have some experience with it. Mm -hmm. And you can go to them and say, you know, I'm curious about wh what would you recommend I read that might be in an earlier generation or, or you know, contact somebody mm -hmm. that you know is a little further down the road. Oh, that's great advice. Yeah, and I'll add that there are there are some online bibliographies that are helpful. Uh, we'll post uh, one in the show notes as an example. Uh, Oz Guinness has thought a lot about this and written a little bit on this. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's him, and an invitation to the classics. Is that Guinness? Uh huh. Yep, it's Guinness and Louise Cohen. Yeah, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. So there are these resources as well that other brothers and sisters have put together for us. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an excellent invitation to the classics. It's an excellent, excellent book. This conversation also reminds me um, Chesterton in the Ballad of the White Horse, which is public domain. We'll link it in the show notes. It's a beautiful, I mean, it's a great example of epic poetry that's pretty readable for us as modern people because we're a little mm -hmm. closer to chesterton than we are chaucer so um uh, he he says this and i think it's just brilliant uh, this is king alfred talking to the danes at this point he says therefore your end is on you it is on you and your kings not for fire and eily flynn not that your gods are nine or ten but because it is only christian men that guard even heathen things whoa whoa wow. that is a keeper. You better post that baby. Woo. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a great. And so, I mean, it's a great Saturday night, like entertainment value read. But, well, I'm not so sure Saturday night would be, <laughs> but <you know. laughs> maybe, maybe our Saturday nights are a little different. Sunday night. Sunday night. There we yeah, go. There, you there go. we go. There you go. Yeah. But it's, it's a great read even for entertainment value, but Thinking about that and thinking about the ways that Christians have through the years preserved, it has been part of our culture to preserve yes. Yes. the art of even, even heathen things, even pagan Absolutely. things Absolutely. so that we might learn from them now. It's a, it's to do them a service in, in their work in history to, to engage with these thoughts. Absolutely. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go, but I enjoy these so much and I will see you folks uh, next month. Thank you for this time. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts. 
where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.